Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura, promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise to his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Again, a word about our sponsors for this uh, episode. CR101 Radio Network is a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station. It hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. Please take a look at the website, cr101radio.com, for more information on that. Also, GCS Apprenticeship Program is a training program dedicated to the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be equipped to get involved with the inspirational task and honor of being a Christian teacher or even owning and operating their own Christian school. See again another website at gcsapprenticeship.com. And so, you know, we're still in lockdown here in most of the U.S., and uh, we're still seeing riots and cities being burned. We are still um, seeing political rivalry and civil upheaval at levels that are a bit staggering, at least to me. The stock market's down so much that it's affecting people now personally. Um, and, and there's no real end in sight to this, though. People would love to believe it's going to end in November. And so, you know, we could go on about all the stuff happening in the world, which I'm sure would get a whole lot more uh, attention if I wanted just, a, you know, attention-based um radio show, but really, I still think it's important to just keep equipping uh, the the church and keep pushing in the direction of theonomy and reconstruction and start building up rather than getting lost in the ether of what's going on. And not that what's going on is not important. a matter of fact, Christians should be absolutely involved in what's going on, particularly in the promotion of the law and the gospel on these matters, and it will bring about persecution. There's no doubt about that. And so regardless of if it's the last um, riot, shooting, burning, whatever uh, is happening, if Christians have a chance to say something in in an honest and, and proper way, they should definitely say that. But to be honest, I'm just burned out of, of dealing with the hype of 2020, dealing with all the problems that seem to be facing us, and honestly, we have better things to talk about when we talk about the law of God, when we talk about theonomy and how it affects society and how we could rectify some of those wrongs. So I thought that this would be an important um, discussion that we could have and uh, a lesson maybe for those who haven't heard heard of such a thing, and maybe even an introduction to how to think about um, this part of our theology 
as theonomists, uh, regardless of which perspective you come from, whether you come out of the Presbyterian school of thought or you come out of the Reformed Baptist school of thought or if you come out of a, of a completely non-denominational uh, school of thought or whatever it is, wherever it is that you find yourself at, maybe this will help and maybe it's just us, you know, preaching to the choir to some people. But I think it's it's very important at this time, particularly because this is the time where we should be thinking about reconstruction. If ever we should have reconstruction on our mind, now is the time. And many people do not have reconstruction on their mind um, at all. And then again, there are some people that are not Christians who have it on their mind quite a bit right now, and that's uh, that's probably what's going on here with the powers that be trying to recollect their power in in a new in a new way. But where do we need to start here? Where should we start in talking about our end of this and how we understand this and how we need to understand it to have a a secure basis and not getting lost in the um, the errors, quite frankly, or the heresies that could come along with um, with this with the doctrine of theonomy. I mean, there are people both in what I'll call the Torah camp, you know, those who keep the law of God uh, when it pertains to what some would call ceremonial laws, which I reject the idea of and the notion of uh, a ceremonial class of laws, because all of God's law is moral so in fact if god says something is wrong or unclean or not to be done then then i believe that it should stay that way and that we have no power in our mouth to object to almighty god and so there's that camp that can benefit from this information and then there's the the theonomy camp which is the, the term i generally use because it's just greek for god's law and um, i just use it as a broad brush personally to talk about um, both you know, the observance of the law of God, whether it is in dietary law, um, or whether it is in uh, keeping of feast days or the Sabbath, uh, the new moon, or whatever it is that uh, a person who wants to keep God's law is is trying to do with their life, in their human life. Um, covenant theology is the answer to how you do not stumble into heresy um, while being observant to the laws of God, either personally, civilly, uh, as a nation, whatever it is, this is the answer, I believe, to that question. So that's where we need to start, I think. And that is basically a look at some of the grassroots again of having a systematic theonomy. We have much need in having understanding of the foundations of where we stand with a theonomic uh, perspective and a reconstructionist perspective, the idea of rebuilding society um, with the law of God, because there is so much opposition out there against the idea of the law of God in general from many misconceptions, many unthought about and ignorant ideas concerning uh, the position we are coming from. And so I've decided to, to promote covenant theology in this particular episode and help build it up a little bit 
in understanding how it ties in to the law of God, particularly theonomy. And really, I believe that to have a consistent understanding of a theonomic worldview, you have to accept and embrace covenant theology. And I'm not saying in, in the way that many different uh, people have written books on it or have professed it. However, the main core of that idea is what I'm talking about. And so we're going to have to look at that in order, I think, to help deflect and divert um, the blows that come from the enemy, but also to keep us on the straight and narrow and not to get lost on the path of um, works-based salvation, I guess, ultimately would be the the, uh, the outcome of that. We have to have that idea present in our mind, has to be vivid to us, we have to be confirmed in it and um, unshakable in order to combat the um, fiery darts of the devil on this particular subject. And I think I have, in every episode, made the uh, relevance of the Reformed faith, namely grace through faith unto good works, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, summarized, applicable in our understanding. And so the only applicable and logical way to summarize all that the Scripture says concerning um, having an ungenerate, you know, generated dead man um, to do anything good, you know, eventually do anything good, is that reforming doctrine that I have tried very much to place forefront and that should unite us as a whole um, in our, our cause and in our faith, and that there is a truth um, that we have to have in this, and it has to be presuppositionally and apologetically and combatively in a defensive posture used to diffuse um, the accusation of legalism that theonomists, believers in God's law, often are accused of. Um, no matter which part of God's law it is that you decide to, you know, uh, make part of your understanding of what the good works are that we're to um, be doing in our life, uh, whether that's civilly, uh, socially, or like I said, even personally, I need to be able to respond to that. Someone comes along the the, the, the uh, road and they say, that is legalism. You're a legalist. And you have undermined the gospel somehow, and so on and so forth. And so you know, that is an accusation that I think probably anyone who believes in the law of God has heard. But the problem is, is most of the people who would accuse us of such a thing do not have a very secure foundation in covenant theology. They don't even understand it. Some have never even heard of it. And they don't know what that means or what it implicates. Okay. Um, because that is the position that is going to be strongest when you just say amen to everything that the Bible says, including the Pentateuch. It's all right. It's all good. It's all perfect. Um, everything, every word of God is, is pure. And so when you say that and you're unmovable, you're unshakable, you're unwavering in the laws of God, it's the absolute rule of the Scripture, meaning the Scriptures, the prophets, the histories, the gospel, everything we understand is built on what we are first taught in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the law of God. And so by holding that, someone comes along and they're like, well, you know, you're a legalist or you're a Judaizer for trying to impose 
you know, Israel's law or the Commonwealth of Israel's law uh, upon Christianity. That's that's wrong, you know. And so you have to have an answer for that accusation. And I've become accustomed um, to hear this concerning myself and others, and that even after I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection for justification as the only means of salvation, righteousness, and sanctification, I still hear those types of accusations, and you do too. And so we need to understand how to deal with that and be consistent. And really, you know, like I said, it is found, summarized in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Okay, in understanding that grace comes through faith and then that is under good works. It, it's, it's all right there. It's easy to be seen. It's easy to be explained once you have that knowledge, but not everybody can see it and not everyone can understand how it works. And so we have to have an answer ready to deal with our faith that we have in the world that we live in and especially among those Christians who are honest, not the ones that aren't honest, there are too, way too many of those, but the ones who are honest about what they think we are doing wrong and what we think we are preaching wrongly, okay? Because that is an important thing to diffuse, and the hard thing about it is we are diffusing it on a theological level, okay? And not everyone's mind is willing to go and think about theological things. They're not willing to go deeper and deeper into the law of God and the word of God and in the, the statements made in the New Testament and the Gospels in order to have a consistent understanding of how this all works systematically together, how it all meshes to produce a, a picture, to produce for us how things work. But that's where we have to go. If they're unwilling to do that, well, that's their problem. They, they're probably just not interested in hearing the Word of God anyhow. They're happy where they're at, and they want to stay there. But in the event you do deal with somebody who is accusing you of such a thing or somebody who is um, trying to uh, say something in opposition to the law of God being the rule in society, then this hopefully will help um, Further, your understanding of how that Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 uh, works, you know, and, and just kind of help with that. And so here's what I want to start uh, introducing into your listening here. Simply, I just want to use the statement of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 summarily in saying this as to carry with us the necessity of grace through faith before all good works. Just remember that. There is where you can start with just broad brushing the statement, just kind of, um, you know, say, no, no, we're not saying works, then grace and faith. We're saying grace is given by God. That's a free gift. Faith is then given to us. That's how we even understand we have gotten grace. And then that leads us also to the good works of God's law. That leads us to understand there are good things for us to do and for society to do. So that when we're dealing on the good works of God, that he indeed did intend for us, he ordained for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10, are undoubtedly 
before ordained laws of God. They, they those are the good things, and you can you know pick any place in the Scripture, especially in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you can see these places where God says to walk in His ways. You know, if you if you walk in my ways, if you walk with me, you know, I will walk with you. But if you walk against me, I will walk against you, and I'll punish you for your sins. And so, you know, we see this type of language. It's easy to show that that is what the walking is dealing with when we walk contrary to the laws of God. And so uh, those good works that we are preaching and saying that a Christian should live in and that society should live in, um, not that you can force people in private to do anything, and not that I'm promoting that, but that the general rule of society by good godly Christian men is going to produce a lawful society full of good works as the standard of good. This keeps people from not robbing one another, stealing from one another. This keeps people uh, honest in their marriages. Um, there's uh, a, a myriad of good that just comes to even sinful, dead, carnal man society when godly men, Christian men, the elect, the church, bring the law of God into society and keep it as the rule of, of, of law, as the law of the land. And so that's something that we need to truthfully be able to promote voraciously and we need to be able to lay the foundations for that understanding. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a great place to go to just get started in that explanation as to what those uh, before ordained good works are and how they are the law. It's pretty straightforward and easy to see. We believe the word of God, the law of God is eternal. And so the laws of God are eternal. And the eternal words written in the Pentateuch delivered to Moses for Israel, the, the law Jesus plainly said he did not come into the world to destroy are eternal. He said he didn't come to destroy, but he said he came to fulfill. That's Matthew 5.17. Many Reformed theonomists before me have stated it. Uh, Rush Dooney, Bonson, um, to name a few, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to ascertain that the law is not destroyed, that the word fulfill cannot mean destroy if the whole point of the statement is to say, I did not come to destroy. Okay, that's been something we have hung our hat on for a long time, and anyone keeping the laws of God has hung their hat on. And so the fulfillment, though, is where the focus often goes. The fulfillment in terms of Christ is multitudinous. We know this. Christ's perfection is a filling up of the law. Okay? When we think of fulfill, we think of filling up, like filling up a cup. Um, you know, in doing all that was written therein, Christ did it. So we know, you know, truly he fulfilled the law in his life. Christ's righteousness also, by that standard, fills up God's righteousness in Christ. His cup overfloweth. The law of God, which is the standard of righteousness, is had by Christ Jesus in such an abundance that he is sufficiently able to even give his faithful of his righteousness. That's how much um, his righteousness is, overflows. That's how much the law of God is filled fulfilled, okay? That righteousness 
is liberally given. Okay? And to declare us righteousness, uh, righteous as well. He's able to take of his righteousness and impute it unto us. Something we'll speak of a little bit more as we get into considering this. The centrality of having this presupposition theonomically is, is immense in terms of our Christian worldview. Both in knowing that there is none righteous except those who are imputed by Christ's righteousness, and then also us knowing what standard of righteousness that is. And that is righteousness, justice, determined by God's law. Okay, All of God's law, every jot and tittle, is a manifestation of his righteousness that we can understand. And we know that that is entirely fulfilled by Christ in the sense that it runneth over. His cup runneth over. Okay, this presupposition of Christ's work and how it applies to believers and how it applies to the world is sometimes shelved. We just put it on the shelf when we meet theonomic principles that we don't like. And that's generally where the argument always ends up when you're dealing with someone who wants to abrogate God's law. They want to destroy God's law and they say, you know, that's fulfilled in the sense of destroyed and make a contradiction of Matthew 5.17. So, for instance, when we read about how in biblical society, for instance, slavery, meet slavery, there's a word everyone hates right now, so I thought it would be great to bring it up, a theonomic principle we do not like was a normal part of life. Okay, In biblical society, slavery was a normal part of life. It was part of the law. It's part of the worldview. If it were a bond servant, of other people, ethnically distinct from the Hebrews, which are not redeemable. Their kindred, their kinsmen cannot redeem them. They cannot redeem them, redeem themselves. That's one part of God's law, which we've discussed on this program before. And be it a servant of one's own family or nation, that is redeemable. There's a whole different class that applies on the basis of what nation one belongs to in the Commonwealth of Israel. Be it a hired servant, one who is a servant for his hire, his money, he works. That's pretty much what category most people would fall into today when they have an employer-employee uh, relationship with another. While they don't call their boss a master, in fact, they really are a hired servant. And so we have many different understandings of servitude or slavery in the Bible, and that uh, relationship is mediated and mitigated by certain laws of God. And no, slavery is not the only issue, but what most people do not realize is that this is a great example to show how many laws tie in to the scenarios Paul deals with in many books. Philemon and Ephesians, multiple books deal with the servant-master relationship. And so, regardless of what status of servitude we look at, our modern pers perspective that we use today and what we're seeing in 2020, 21st century, it militates against the law of God. Our modern perspective does not like that aspect. It seeks to find a resource from within the law of God to render it obsolete. Okay? If you're a Christian and you can't 
willfully contradict the Bible. You have to look within the law of God, the word of God, to find something you can do to render it obsolete. And that's generally where the Matthew 5.17 um, statement always you know, starts to get played with. Our modern perspective does not like that aspect. It seeks to find a resource from within the law of God to render it obsolete, as to make God more anti-servitude than he is. Okay, They want God's law uh, to be more anti-servitude and have that perspective. And often the, the way to try and lay the axe to the root of this truth that's really plainly and easily to see in the, the Bible is to just say, Jesus fulfilled this law. Okay? And then we don't have to deal with it. If Jesus fulfilled it, we don't even have to go to law, discuss it, understand it. We don't have to ask questions. But when they say Jesus fulfilled this law, and in fact meaning Jesus destroyed this law, and under the quote-unquote new covenant, which they hardly go and look and see that it's the law written on the heart, mind, and soul, nevertheless, um, they say Jesus destroys this law under the new covenant. Things like this don't, don't apply. And so, uh, though the Apostle Paul would clearly uh, admonish masters to treat servants in a godly fashion, we see that all throughout the, the epistles. I don't even have to pull it up. You can go and look in many different places in the Bible to see um, Paul admonishing masters to treat their servants well in a godly fashion, and he does not say that means that you have to release them. He admonishes servants or slaves to serve their masters well and not to run away. Even taking servitude and master and reminding them, Paul does, he reminds them that if they both are Christians, they must deal righteously with each other. The master is not allowed to be too harsh, and the servant should serve faithfully and honestly his master. In this situation, with biblical example, we could quickly see how Christ's righteousness would affect the relationship of a master and a servant within the scope of the law of God. We could go to the law, see how it's governed by the righteous standards of the law of God on whatever level that relationship exists, whether it is a bond servant whether it's a familial servant, whether it is a hired servant. okay, We can go and look at the law, and we can see Paul also all throughout the New Testament in his epistles um, reminding masters to treat servants well, reminding servants to do a good job for their masters. And we can very quickly say, well, this relationship should be governed by the righteous standards of the law of God. Regardless of what type of relationship it is, it will be able to be understood by the law of God. And see, Christ's fulfillment is not interpreted as a destruction, then, for these laws. Rather, it is interpreted in consistent restoration or reconstruction of a more perfect relationship between these parties, the master and the servant, as our example. This is how we would apply fulfillment. Okay, That's how you would apply the fulfillment of Christ in understanding how Paul speaks to master and servant to deal in accordance with the law of God and rightly and justly with one another. 
These are clear Christian post-cross, okay, after the cross, case examples, that these may be some of the best examples, I think, to show how the law of God is bettered and restored by faith in Christ and his imputed righteousness and not abrogated at all. And so slavery is not the only issue, but what most people do not realize is that servitude or slavery is not biblically the snatching of a person as we would think about it and placing chains on them and dragging them to a foreign land. That's not what it's talking about. Rather, slavery was and is the perfect and biblical way to restitute one's debts to another when they cannot pay for wrong or accident that they have done. There are cases of captives taken in war. There are cases of, you know, where perhaps one nation would purchase of another nation slaves. Okay, I'm not saying there isn't. And I'm not saying anciently that that's something that was not done. But I'm saying the whole idea of slavery, the biblical laws concerning the master-servant relationship, brings into focus restitution. It brings into focus the the perfect biblical answer for how debts should be paid to another as God would have them done ultimately, but also as that which is best for society. The Christian that stole, for instance, should steal no more. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. For instance, and so the laboring of the hands and the working has a direct correlation to laws of God concerning this. Exodus chapter 22 verse 3 says that a thief, when he's found breaking in, that he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. This is biblically called restitution or payback. That's what it means, to pay back that he should make full restitution. And if he has nothing, then he should be sold for his theft. So he is placed in a state of servitude or slavery. And so here's my point. If an unbeliever steals a man's car and is charged that he must restore it plus a fine or pay back double to make for theonomic restitution, which is according to the law, depending on the situation, and he has nothing to pay, and so he is sold for his theft to the man that he stole from, and then a master-servant relationship is created. Do you see how that works? And say that man becomes converted to Christ. Okay, Let's say that man that stole becomes converted to Christ. And say his master is a Christian already, and he is converted to Christ, Christ's redemption is not the ticket out of jail or the ticket out of repayment to the master. See, oftentimes this is where the controversy begins. They say, well, Christ's redemption is a full redemption, and so therefore it's like he got to get out of you know jail-free card, and he doesn't have to pay back to his master from the prior sin, and that sin should be forgiven him. Or if he's a Christian and just made a mistake, he should just be forgiven, and there should be no restitution. But is that the way it should work? 
Should this conversion act as a credit towards his payment? Perhaps if the master wishes to do so, and he can afford to do so, sure. No one's going to argue that. It's everyone's right to give a gift if they want to, if they can. And I'm sure this would change the heart of any Christian man stolen from to see that his slave, his servant, was a thief that has been changed in his heart, mind, and soul. That he no longer wanted to steal, that he would steal no more. But does that negate the fact that he should labor with his hands to pay back and to do that which is good? No. No, it doesn't. And so what does that leave the ex-thief to being? Does he have civil grounds for being liberated? Can he go to before a judge or, or a jury and say, hey, I've become a Christian, Christ paid all my debts, and therefore my master shouldn't get anything back. Um, he should um, be left high and dry, and I should be let go because I'm a Christian. Is that even the attitude of a Christian? Is that an attitude of one who knows he had done wrong, knows he was a sinner, and now he's found grace before God? So does he have civil grounds for being liberated? From the sin stain of the theft, yes, he does. From the sin stain of the theft, he can claim the blood of Jesus before the judgment seat of Christ as full payment for his sins. With Jesus Christ being his mediator and propitiation, that he will be his advocate, no doubt. He has a place before the judgment seat of God. And he can say there was full payment made for his sins boldly. And Jesus will mediate that for him, propitiate him, atone him. But can this man take Jesus' blood and destroy the law of God that bound him to his master? The judgment that renders him a debtor to this man according to God's law of justice. Can he use Jesus' blood as a substitute for paying back his master according to how the law of justice says it should be done? The answer is no. The answer is no. The sacrifice for sin has never done this on this level is what needs to be noticed. And here's where we start dipping into covenant theology. We've laid a scenario. Let me explain it, summarize it a little bit. Grab me a drink here before we uh, keep going. This is where we start dipping into covenant theology. Okay? God's law has never taught that sacrifice on the earthly level or a good work in that way, a good work done before the altar, can forgive sin. Never done that. And so the answer is no. A man cannot pay the justice demanded to another man by saying, Jesus' blood will do that for me. you got to let me go free on many different levels. The sacrifice on sin, never having that power by God himself given in that way. But rather, restitution is the sacrifice, the good work of a man truly given grace, having come through faith. Let me say that again. The restitution he will pay to his master is like the sacrifice, it's like the good work, because grace through faith unto good works of a man 
that has been truly given that grace that came through faith, that's what he'll want to do. This is clear in the very chapter of Matthew 5 that most people don't go back and read the context of whenever they deal with Matthew 5.17. But if you just keep reading just a few verses below where it says, Think not, I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. If you just jump down to Matthew 5.23, Christ is giving a lesson on this very subject. He says, Therefore, if thou... Uh, bring thy gift to the altar, referring to the tabernacle, the temple in his day, that there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Okay, so you remember your brother has something against thee. You owe your brother something. Leave there your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift on that altar. And then he says this, Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and then you're cast in the prison. And verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means, thou shalt by no means, thou shalt by no means come out thence till you have paid the utmost farthing. See, Christ's righteousness sustains God's law in terms of righteousness. But it does not destroy it making a confusion on earth. Okay? The law has ever taught this in the tabernacle and temple system. If we were to go all the way back to Leviticus 6, 2 through 7, and I have a partial, kind of a paraphrase of it, starting in 2, if a soul sin and commit a trespass against Yahweh, because he has sinned, and he is guilty, and he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall even restore it in the principle, and then shall add a fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth. In the day of his trespass offering, so there's, there's part of that gift being put on the altar. He realizes he has to pay, it, pay back something to his neighbor. He has to give it to whom it appertains, the brother that has ought against him. And it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he has done in pres- trespassing therein. See, even in these days, the understanding of how restitution was made and then applied to earthly forgiveness, not on the heavenly level, okay? Make a clear distinction. Not on the heavenly level or in the spiritual realm, but in the place of the temple, which is on earth, where sins on earth are recognized as being forgiven, quote-unquote forgiven, by the above prescription. Okay, this is a recognition of that heartfelt act, that's that repentance that has already taken place. But it's on a whole different plane of existence forgiveness takes place and had taken place according to the Scripture, especially as it is clearly stated in Ephesians and Hebrews, which is where we're going to go to look at a deeper look at some covenant theology. 
So I'd like to take some time to place this overarching theology into scope as far as our understanding of restitution for sins and earthly wrongs is concerned in the tabernacle system, as we just read about it, as Jesus spoke about it, as well as in Matthew 5, and read also of this concept and how it deeply impacts our views on theonomy, on God's law, as a Christian ethic for society. I am pretty convinced that it's ignorance or abhorrence of this reformed and reforming doctrine that keeps back many Christians from embracing the prospects of a theonomic society, nation, and church as Christians, I'll just say. It's very much so either ignorance, which is what I'd like to believe it is, or just outright abhorrence. They just they just hate this idea of, of the law of God uh, being what should govern society, nation, and church. Uh, you know, they just don't want to hear it. And so, if we were to chronologically line up statements about salvation, statements about how that is affected, and statements about how that works, we would find ourselves looking at scriptures where I think it would be best said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Special notice there. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, his choice, he willed it, to the praise of the glory of his grace, his free gift, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Okay? And we're just going to stop there for this discussion. We're informed that it was before the foundation of the world that believers have been blessed with this redemption that's in Christ. That it was according to his will. So there was a will that was expressed that this is how it will be. This is in part the nature of the confirmed and promised immutable oath that happened at that time, we could say, or happened in eternity. And so here's an overview of that presuppositional covenant we have to come to the table with that was made between the Father, Son, and Spirit. This gives us an insight into a covenant, a will that was expressed, accepted, and made by Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we can see more of this in an overview of Hebrews. In reality, Hebrews deals almost entirely with this subject from beginning to end, dealing with a situation, obviously, as the temple was coming to an end and as the Lord was going to destroy it um, in Jerusalem and it would no longer exist and hasn't existed since, um, that that was going to uh, need a level of understanding added to the Christians who still worshipped in the temple, as Acts chapter 2 makes very plain, that they were still singing, praising uh, in the temple um, and and fellowshipping and breaking bread and, and all kinds of things. Um, so there was a level of understanding that had to come as to how to adjust your mind to 
accept what was going to happen and how you were going to function without the temple there as part of your worship. And so Hebrews deals with this, and it brings to light what we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1. It brings to light very much so this agreement, this covenant, this oath, this immutable word that was made before the foundation of the, of the world to select a group, a limited people, a chosen group of people to be the sons and to be sealed by the Spirit in agreement with the Father's will. And so let's go to Hebrews 1-2 for just a reading, and I'm just going to kind of jump through Hebrews and kind of speak about it as we go. Hebrews 1-2 says, In these last days God has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So we see this definitely speaking of the Son being before the world. Who being the brightness of his glory, the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. For being made so much better than the angels, as he has inheritance, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. Here we see an heirship, an appointment of all things, including the giving of a people foreknown to God to Christ as being in Christ. Okay, we see that in Hebrews 1, Christ, who even made the worlds, had an inheritance. And by that inheritance, that he was able to purge our sins when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the Father. He had obtained it even before the angels, better than the angels, something that's more excellent than they could ever have. And so then Hebrews 2, starting in 6, picks up on this idea. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, this is Psalm 8, by the way, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visits him? Thou madest the son of man a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of your hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, under the feet of the Son of Man. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now we see it. 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, the free gift of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, take that back to chapter 1, for it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so, we see the power of God placing all things under Christ, the Son of Man's feet, and how this leaves nothing out. And so, he has power to do that which he does. 
And so with all this being said of God to the Son at the time before he came into the world, we have grounds to speak of the word of God as an immutable oath, as a covenant or promise, as binding as the words that made creation, just as binding as the words that said, let there be light and there was light, let there be and there was. He made an immutable oath. He made a covenant in the inheritance given to the Son. Before the foundation of the world, he also gave him those whom he would redeem that were in him. Pretty important stuff. Hebrews 6, verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, take that back to Ephesians 1, works all things after the counsel of his own will, to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, who's made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so it's pretty important to realize that this immutable oath made by God before the foundation of the world, that this conversation that was had, and when God speaks, he can't lie, when these things took place, that there was a people chosen to receive God's grace in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the imputation of righteousness before the foundation of the world by the will of God, by the counsel of God that is immutable and confirmed by this oath that nothing in time can shake that, okay? This covenant happened before the foundation of the world, as Jesus is the only begotten of, of the Father, before the world began, the eternal word of the Father. Hebrews 9.23 then goes on, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heaven, now pay attention, there's a pattern of things in heaven, should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with the better sacrifices than these. So it's, it's important that the pattern is purified, but it's even more important that there's better sacrifices of heavenly things. Hebrews 10.4 then says, For it's not possible, listen, for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And that... Hebrews 10.11 goes on to say that every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. What did that just tell us? It tells us that in the heavenly tabernacle, sacrifices, physical, fleshly blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins in the heavenly realm. The priest that was made after the, uh, the similitude of, of Aaron. The, uh, the sons of Levi, by genetic descent, they stood and ministered and offered their sacrifices, but those sacrifices in truth, in the heavenly realm, 
could never take away sins. And therefore, even in the day the Lord commanded Moses, when Yahweh himself commanded Moses these laws, like we read in Leviticus, the eternal heavenly tabernacle was given the application of one offering that had perfected forever them that are sanctified, according to Hebrews 10.14. Okay? Even in the day the Lord commanded Moses, listen, when the laws of Leviticus were laid down, these laws, the eternal heavenly tabernacle, was still focused on the blood of Christ. Okay? As Hebrews 10.14 clearly goes out of its way to tell us, for by one offering he's perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant I will make with them and after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And so it is very important that we remember that God, when he speaks before the foundation of the world, when God speaks in terms of covenants, these covenants reveal to us in time that which God had already foreordained since the foundation. There was already a perfection. There was a perfect Offering to sanctify, to make us holy by the blood of Jesus. And that was always the way sin was atoned for in the heavenly realm, by the blood of Jesus. It was as good as accomplished. Now listen to me. This is, here's the crux of the matter. This is, this is the stone upon which all the foundation lays of what we're talking about. The sacrifice for all sin throughout eternity from the beginning to the end was as good as accomplished by the word of God before the foundation of the world because God is faithful. Not like man is faithful to keep a covenant. Not like man is faithful to keep a promise. Not like man has to swear by this and that. But because God is faithful and has faithfully promised and had faithfully promised to send Jesus. Okay, this is how God keeps his covenant even unto a thousand generations, we're told, in the law of God, the book of Exodus. See, with this understanding of covenant theology, we have the ability to explain the differences on the heavenly realm, that is to say, in the tabernacle in heaven, as it concerns justification and sin's forgiveness, as well as on the earthly plane of justice between man and man. And sins in the flesh done against one's neighbor, brother, or against a stranger, no matter who you violate against. The perfect law that governs all these different relationships men are engaged in in life can still be governed by the law of God. But we first have to realize that in all your restitution and all that you have done, that the law demands out of you on an earthly level, that is not what can pay for your sins. But rather that since the foundation of the world, it was declared and made by an immutable oath that Jesus Christ's blood would and did forgive sins, 
So powerfully was that immutable word, so powerfully is it that God cannot lie, that whenever that is said in eternity, it echoes forward and backwards, and it emanates from the cross. That's how powerful the word of God is, because it does not lie. See, restitution, when we get back to this application, as we saw in Leviticus, as we saw in Matthew 5, Restitution must be united with redemption of the sinner by the just God, but it must also be fulfilled in the life of a believer in accordance with the justice of the law in the world that we live in. Restitution must be united with redemption, no doubt about it. It must be united with the redemption of a sinner by a just God, but it must also be fulfilled in that believer's life in accordance with God's justice, because his word, his law, is immutable in the world we live in. Making clear for us, seeing how relationships in the flesh, for example, okay, in this world, such as the master-servant relationship ordained by the law of God through Moses, are not immediately disbanded because of Christ's redemption on the soul, okay, dealing with the soul level. Though it will affect the relationship in the flesh, undoubtedly, it better affect the relationship that we have with others in the flesh and um, how we deal with one another and they deal with us. What happens to our soul better reflect that way. But it does not immediately disband because Christ's redemption of the soul happens. Therefore, it does not then redeem the flesh from that which is obligated to pay back or that which is obligated to serve on a human level. Okay, on an earthly level. It doesn't change that. And so we are given a lesson that says God's law is holy, just, and good. And our holiness, justice, and goodness is imperfect. In all situations, without Christ's holiness, justice, and goodness, that he has imputed to us, that we would apply to all areas of our life to write them correctly, to make them more perfect according to his new and living way has to be applied to our life. We do not have holiness, justice, and goodness perfectly. It's, we're imperfect when we become a believer. We get a, a, a down payment of holiness, justice, and goodness to help perfect our imperfection. And so as it was in the days of the earthly tabernacle, when the beautiful temple of Solomon stood when the, the, the temple stood in the days of Christ, the Lord's forgiveness of sin was not dependent upon the gift that was on the altar. That was an outward sign of a believer's faith in God's forgiveness in the heavens by the word of the Father given to the Son, made effective by the Holy Spirit. This was then promised in the seed of the woman to come. They knew this. They knew that the crushing of sin had to come through the heel of the woman, of the, the seed of the woman. They knew it. That all sin's forgiveness was to be dependent upon the coming of this Son of Man. And that God had put all things under his feet, including sin. And so forgiveness in the heavens was made effective by the Holy Spirit as a word of the Father given to the Son in covenant. 
It was then promised in that seed of a woman that was to come, promised in Genesis 3.15 to come. It was spoke of by Revelation more plainly by the Holy Prophet since the world was, we're told, plainly out of the Scriptures, plainly by the Apostles. Particularly as we see the report of the arm of Yahweh in his Messiah in Isaiah 53, we see this all the more. And then we see the reality of the promise in the books that we call the New Testament. And this is how we see the covenant being revealed, being made manifest to those on the earth, those living in time. It was not the heavenly, but the earthly that was accomplished by the gifts on the earthly altar. Remember, the temple's on earth. The temple is earthly. The priests are earthly. The blood of the bulls and goats is flesh. The priests are made of flesh. The people are flesh. The sin needing forgiven in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm, is spiritual. It's not the redemption of the soul that is accomplished by restitution either between Men in terms of God's law of justice, when God's perfect law is practiced in society, such as the law of restitution, which may require slavery, servitude for a debt that cannot be paid. And while it's obligatory for a believer to be merciful to his fellow citizen, to his brother believer, or to a sojourning stranger, it is not of the best earthly benefit to set aside earthly justice according to the spiritual standards of the laws of God for society. It is not the best option. Rather, it is in the application of the laws, commandments, statutes, judgments, and every precept that the holiness of God is revealed from heaven against sinners. And grace by Jesus Christ unto eternal life is then witnessed to in the world by the holiness and perfection of that law. And it's being carried out in society. And that's covenant theology. To claim a benign fulfillment of the law of God, in, as in Matthew 5.17, to claim a benign fulfillment of the law for all levels of life is derogation to its plain context and that of the total whole of its biblical positivity. It's an ignorant choice which distorts the relationship men should have one with the other and creates the backdoor Christian approach to anarchy, egalitarianism, and every political and theological inequity of human relations to abandon the law of God upon this point. Thus, the Christian approach and therefore the theonomic approach to the justice of God manifesting itself in society by means of reconstruction, but able to explain these application of Christ's fulfillment of the law without destroying the law, it must be able to minister the message of grace and forgiveness of sin, even to those who are worthy of death. Even when we go and take this logic as far as the death penalty, as sin's forgiveness on a spiritual or heavenly plane by the blood of Jesus in a Christian society when it is headed up by a government that's rooted in the rule of law, the law of God, in application of the law of God, must have the ability to carry out justice on earth without punitive contradiction. And that's going to come by covenant theology. 
in understanding justification by faith applied since the foundation of the world by the immutable oath, the unchanging covenant, by the everlasting promise of God that cannot lie. That's where the answer lay. That's where the contradiction in a Christian society is overturnable. There is no contradiction because we aren't dealing with one who needs to do things in order to be saved. In this way, we know Abraham was justified by faith the same way. So we're going to go to the book of Romans as we close up here. In this way, we know Abraham was justified by faith, as was David, as was taught by Paul in application to himself and those he wrote to in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, 1 is where I'm going to read from. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, have found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace of a free gift. If you work, it's not given to you freely. But it's given of debt, as if you work for something and God owes you. Five, but to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Skipping the middle, jumping down to verse 22, Romans 4, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Notice, in Romans 4, Abraham, David, as well as Paul, all hung their faith on imputation. Paul comes after the cross. David was during the time of the tabernacle, during the time where blood was on the altar. Abraham was before the tabernacle. And so here's the point. All three men speaking have imputed righteousness from Jesus Christ. What's that mean? It means Abraham believed, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. David believed, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Paul believed, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. All from one central point, all stemming from a covenant made by God since before the foundation of the world. An imputation that was affectable in heavenly places unto justification, unto righteousness, before the altar of God in the heavens, not on earth, before the altar of God in the heavens, and that was done by a promise of the blood of Jesus. And while the law of God was the standards of the commonwealth of Israel and the kingdom under David, no doubt, we do not find David placing his faith in his gifts that are upon the altar, do we? Do we find David believing in the in the sacrifices, or do we see him repenting, falling upon the ground, 
asking forgiveness, being told by Nathan the prophet that his sins have been hidden from God, that they've been put away, and then we see him taking his gifts to the altar. Now we find David placing his faith in imputed righteousness, coming from the source of all righteousness in this world. That's by the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal word of the Father. Therefore, if the forgiveness of sin and transgression is covered by another's righteousness unto justification and not by any works, no, not even by the works of the law, rather, an exchange you are not worthy of, none of us are worthy of, is imposed upon us from the righteousness of Jesus. That was foreordained since before the world was. Therefore, when we speak of justification, we are more assuredly speaking in terms apart from works of the law. We're also speaking apart from any work that could be done in our flesh because this righteous justification is a gift of grace freely given by a covenant before the world was, before you even existed, you could have never worked for it in the first place. If you're one of his, that's how it works. If you're not one of his, it just doesn't apply to you at all. There's no covenant made for your soul. God knows those who are his. Therefore, again, does the law of the earthly tabernacle require gifts that cannot make the comer thereunto perfect? Does it? Let's ask the question. Does the law of the earthly tabernacle require gifts that cannot make the comer thereunto perfect? Did it do that? In Leviticus, yes, it did. Was the forgiveness of sin in the heavenly tabernacle from which the pattern came to Moses, remember he got it from the pattern in the mount, for him to make the earthly type satisfied by the blood of bulls and goats? No. The forgiveness of sin in the heavenly tabernacle, the pattern that Moses got the earthly tabernacle from, was not satisfied. The altar in the heavens was not satisfied by the blood of bulls and goats, and it never could be by any priest. The answer is no. So, was there works of God's law that required sacrifice on an altar during the time of the tabernacle? Yes. Did the gifts that came upon that altar of the blood of bulls and goats and other sacrifices, did it take away sin in the heavenly tabernacle? No. No. That forgiveness happened at the foundation of the world and is imputed, imputed to those to whom it belongs. Therefore, we conclude with Paul that the law is to be followed in terms of earthly repentance, earthly forgiveness, earthly restitution, and earthly capital punishment. And any other judgment, any other law of sound doctrine that applies. And all other penological judgments in a theonomic state, without any infringements upon the crown rights of King Jesus to forgive sin and iniquity by his own merit, does not occur at all. The two can never touch one another. The two can never commingle. Simply, as Jesus said, the Nicodemus, who was a master of Israel, a master of the law, that should have known these things according to Jesus' own words in John 3, 5, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The election of God 
made known to a believer by faith does not change the fact that he is bound to make restitution, which is manifested in good works according to the law of God, in obedience to the law of God, including submission to whatever penalties of restitution when one violates the righteousness of the laws of God, that he is bound to faithfully do so. One who is a Christian should not be resistant, but they should, in fact, be an application and obedience to the higher powers of godly government ordained by God, because this, in fact, is a resisting of the ordinance of God. And they that resist, we are told, receive to themselves damnation. When it's imposed by higher powers of godly government, ordained of God in a godly way. When there are two or more witnesses that every word can be established by, the higher powers of godly government that are ordained of God have the power to make that man make full restitution, whether he is Christian or he is not. Romans 13.3 Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Therefore be afraid of the powers, and do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, or avenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So, the question is this. Do we make void theonomy by the absolute authority of the immutable word of God? Or do we establish it? Do we make void theonomy by faith? No, we establish it. Do we make void theonomy by grace? No, we establish it. Grace through faith unto good works. And whenever the civil magistrate can look like Romans 13, punishing evil according to God's law, that he's the minister of God for good, you better believe that he's going to have full power to exact the laws of God as they're written in the Pentateuch by Moses. Without any contradiction to salvation and any contradiction to forgiveness as that happens on the heavenly plane of existence, established by the covenant made before the foundation of the world. And so, I think we all know the answer to the question, if we make void the law, through grace or faith. The answer is no. So I hope this has been informative. I hope uh, this has made some sense of some things. I hope that I have expressed this clearly for those listening as to um, how this um, understanding of the immutable promise of God and the forgiveness of Christ happening before the foundation of the world by an agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit in application to a believer that is chosen is uh, chosen to be imputed with Christ's righteousness is um, the answer for understanding how we can assert a theonomy, we can assert works in this world. We can assert that uh, God's justice is to be followed in this world without ever and has never infringed upon the blood of Christ. It could never come close to it. Um, it could never touch it. It could never commingle with it.
I hope that's been expressed more than anything else because these types of conversations we see in our camps and we see in those who promote theonomy, and quite frankly, I don't, just don't think they're ready or prepared to deal with them. Uh, the last generation of men could. They could deal with them well. Um, they, could, they could express their opinions um, and their, the, the truths that they held clearly, but it seems like in our modern day, we have that hang-up where we just can't, can't agree with the law of God because of our 21st century view, and we also start to kind of capitulate. We start to think that, well, you know, I don't like that law either, and so, yeah, I'd like it if Jesus got rid of that one, and then we create a contradiction that can't be reconciled. But if we're willing to stay faithful to the text of the Word of God, if we're willing to say that every word of God is pure and that we affirm everyone, we say amen to all of it, if that is what we can do, and I know in practice, um, we're all sinners in the flesh and that we're never going to be perfect. But if we can do that in the spirit and if we can believe that if God will reveal to us the truth that we will change and that we believe every word of God's pure, I truly believe that we could get ahead further in the, the theonomic camp um, and not be caught in the wiles and the tricks of the anti-theonomy crowd that oftentimes use scripture that just um, really n negates large portions of of the justice that we could have in society in a reconstructed Christian theonomy. And so I'm going to end there. But uh, next week, in connection to this episode, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 5.1 and its conclusion in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as is believed by most commentaries. Um, in application also to these principles to see what the apostle of the New Covenant taught the church concerning forgiveness on earth. Through uh, Though punishments uh, should have been severe, there is forgiveness that is there. And so I don't want to leave anybody hanging thinking, wow, uh, if you committed something but, you know, that's worthy of death before your conversion, go, you need to go pull Judas or something like that. But um, I'm not saying that at all. So hang in there. We're going to take a look at those scriptures. We're going to put them in application, and we're going to take a look at that and contrast with what we just uh, talked about on this episode. So thanks for joining me today, and uh, I'm hoping that we can do it all again in two weeks. Take care until then.